0: Hi everyone, everyone. I'm John
1: and I'm Georgia and we're here inside
0: your ears to
1: talk about the mac and cheese of movies.
0: This This is is Comfort Comfort Films.
1: Films. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 51 of Comfort Films. We're continuing the third week of our John Carpenter Horror Month by talking about the 1982 film The Thing released on June 25th of that year a couple of weeks after et wow
0: that's a tough time slot
1: (laughs) hard act to follow at that time for sure
0: right i don't see the families being like let's roll up to the thing today (laughs) like
1: gosh we had so much fun with that alien movie et let's go see the thing slightly different types of aliens there
0: <laughs> i think et actually auditioned to be in the thing uh, john carpenter was like look man it's a totally different vibe than what i'm going for yeah you it's, know? Like, it's
1: not that i don't like what you're doing but it just doesn't fit with our movie <laughs> If I do another one, I'll call you.
0: Right? Just the, the little red finger thing's kind of creepy to me. <laughs> you know, it just, I don't know. That just put him over the edge. He didn't want any part of it. You John know?
1: Carpenter could deal with everything in the thing, but then the red finger, no. <laughs> Said no. Couldn't do it.
0: Everybody has their <laughs> limit, right? Everybody has their limit.
1: Even John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this movie was actually based on the 1938 story Who Goes There which is by John W. Campbell. It was first published in Astounding Science Fiction under the pen name Don A. Stewart um, which is another name that Campbell published under. I guess all these pulp kind of sci-fi writers and horror writers would write multiple pseudonym type stories so that they could actually get Multiple stories in the same issue oh, wow. of a magazine, which is pretty cool. Smart, yeah. Um, and this had been previously adapted in 1951, coincidentally another 51. Ooh, connections <laughs> by... <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, by Howard hawkes um, as the Thing from Another World. So that starred James Arness as the Thing which in that uh, film was this plant-based alien monster. <laughs> um, <laughs> people have, you know, in a derogatory way, called him like a, a carrot or something. Um, we actually did watch that, and it was interesting because we've seen The Thing quite a few times. Yeah. Um, and going back and watching, you know, this 1951 version, you know, the stories are similar, um, but Carpenter actually wanted to go back to the source material and kind of more faithfully adapt that john carpenter was a big howard hawks fan as we saw in halloween the 1951 movie the thing from another world was actually one of the films that the kids were watching when uh, jamie lee curtis's character lori strade was babysitting
0: it's funny because what he said about that is he did love howard hawks and he loved the thing from another world But when they were in Halloween, they needed something to show. And it was like, oh, I I have this tape, you know. So it was like that was the reason that that ended up there. And at the time that it appeared in Halloween, he was never thinking that he would be able to do an adaptation of that work. Furthermore, he didn't even really want to do it because he's like, well, the movie's already been made. You yeah. know, he he didn't want to just be doing a retread.
1: And he loved that movie. Yeah. He found it very scary and thought it was amazing. I mean, it's funny when I see that now because we've actually heard several people talk about how scared they were by that movie and how impressed they were with it. Mm-hmm. And it is a really, you know, decent movie for the time. We've watched a lot of, like, those old kind of, you know, radioactive beast stories of, like, the 40s, 50s. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, they're fun, but... It's interesting to me because having grown up on the horror that we grew up on, that seems so tame and mild in comparison.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the problem that I would run into. I mean, in particular, when we're talking about the thing, that ups the stakes to an entirely new level. There's nothing that I've seen since that has ever matched that. And it doesn't matter, you know, how gory something is, it isn't just about gory. What's so impressive about the thing is you have twenty-three-year-old Rob Bottin, who is an artist, Absolutely. and the yeah, right. And these are just these tortured beings, these tortured creatures. You know, and it's such a crazy idea when you think about this being that can just assimilate into anything else, and when it does, it absorbs them, and it always has them. You know, when you have that gruesome scene with Wilford Brimley doing the autopsy on the alien, and he just keeps digging, you know, it's like like Cadbury egg, you know, (laughs) and there's just like, you know, another like wolf head in there or something. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, well, because I mean, in that respect, you're really not just dealing with one alien you're dealing with like every alien or creature or being of any type that that alien has ever you know encountered because he can store all that material Uh, a gender the alien is he he it it, whatever the thing can store all of that data and turn into all of those things so every planet that it's ever been visited every thing that it's ever encountered it could turn into
0: yeah, well, and it also really reminds me of Terminator 2. Makes me think about the T-1000, because very similar, right? The T-1000 could turn into anything. It couldn't turn into complex machines, but that's another story. <laughs> you know, but it could imitate the voice. It could imitate the person. And when it dies at the end, it actually goes through the cycle of you seeing every single creature that it has been for the duration of the film.
1: That's so interesting. I never would have made that connection, but it's absolutely similar to that.
0: Yeah, and, it, well, and it's so impressive because you have this cutting-edge special effects technology happening here, and it's all practical
1: effects. Yeah, it's all makeup effects. It's all special makeup effects by Rob Boutine, who, as you said, was 23 years old. Wow. I mean, this guy's, like, the best also. Like, we watched a lot of interview footage with him. And this is just, like, the dude you want to hang out with, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he has such an imagination. And, you know, everybody that saw, you know, these things he created is talking about how it's art, you know? And I fully agree. Like, that's what blew my mind. Yes, it's gory. Yes, it's gross. But some of, like, the sculptural pieces, for me, the best one or the most intense one is that kind of, splitting head that they bring back from the Norwegian camp. It's kind of like the first one that we really look at and it just looks unbelievable to me. And Richard Mazur who plays Clark in the film said, you know, that he thought this was like art. He's like, this is something you could see in a museum.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with someone again, who's very young, very talented. You know, he created Blake, And his men in the fog. And he actually played Blake, which is awesome. And then between the fog and the thing, he did the howling. And he worked with Rick Baker. And they did these amazing werewolf transformation effects. And everyone was blown away there. So, at this point, when you have Rob Bottin coming in, he is ready to go. I'm sure he had a million ideas. Well, we know he did, because he said to John Carpenter, I have all these wonderful ideas. And John Carpenter thought it was great he had the ideas, but had no idea how they were actually going to bring those to the screen.
1: Yeah. (laughs) He actually ended up sending him off with Michael Plug, who was the storyboard artist, And actually, um, if you can get your hands on the storyboards that he did for this, it's well worth it because it's really like comic book art. It looks beautiful. Yes. And so he kind of took Rob Bottin's descriptions and turned it into these drawings, like concept drawings, and they're really, really amazing. I mean, not everything even was able to make it to the screen, but the creativity of these creature effects was really off the charts.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, my favorite thing that I saw that didn't make it into the film was one of the characters was in front of a door in this massive hand, which is the height of the character smashes through the door and grabs the person. <laughs> now that's, that's terrifying. It's like the Hulk or, you know, Mr. Fantastic, or, you know, it's just like, it's so amazing and it's so creative. You, you want to see that you know, like, I wanted to read that entire comic book. And I would, even though I know the story, there's so much in it. And yeah. there's so much detail in all of the characters. You can really make out, oh, that's McCready. You know, you can see everything in this. They even have the booze bottles, yeah. <laughs> you know, which feature prominently in the <laughs> film. I mean, that that's one thing I want to talk about for a minute. I think it's so funny that you have this all-male cast... And then it turned out to be uh, an all-male crew. I I mean, it was just like, well, when you have a bunch of guys together, okay, standards really drop through the floor, okay? Like, I mean, this is when there's behavior that you wouldn't even think monkeys would engage in. You know, like, nothing is clean. I mean, everybody is bombed, you know, the the whole time. You know, I mean... Everybody is smoking and drinking. They have their own bottles. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, you are that deep in this. I mean, at the very beginning of the film, we actually see McCready... He's playing chess on the computer. The computer beats him, so he actually takes his cup of whiskey and just pours it into the mainframe <laughs> to destroy it. Just yeah. just like a total, just like crow magnon man, you know? It's just like there's nothing there to keep them chained, which adds... To the terror of this, because, you know, you have all these guys that are questioning each other, questioning themselves, who is the alien? And they are trying to hang on to some kind of semblance of order, but it entirely goes out the window. Yeah. It entirely goes out the window.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really, even before the alien makes it on scene... Things aren't going great here. No, You know, they can't get in touch with anybody. These storms are rolling in. They're in this mega isolated, really the most isolated place you can be on the planet unless you're in some submarine in the Mariana Trench or something. But like, you know, this is kind of as, as uncharted wilderness as we get in the world now is in Antarctica, where there's no one, and the storms are rolling in, they're isolated from everyone, they can't communicate with the outside world, and all these people seem pretty fed up, Even from the beginning. Yeah,
0: I mean, at the very beginning, we have two Norwegians in a helicopter flying, you know, towards the camp, chasing this animal. You know, you have one of the Norwegians leaning out of the helicopter, shooting at this animal, missing like a million times when it's like six inches from him. He
1: drops a grenade and he misses for crying out loud. Right? The thing that I like is that the dog or, or whatever, it's like a half dog, half wolf kind of a deal, looks happy. It's like running and it's just like, ha ha, you missed me. And I kind of love it.
0: I like that, too. I mean, I love the happy dogs. I mean, you you showed me something about this, that the dogs in movies a lot of times are very happy when they're supposed to be menacing.
1: Yeah, they have to, like, a lot of times now they have to, like, CGI the dog's tails because the dogs are so happy that they're doing a good job that they're, like, wagging them. (laughs) Um, And this dog did look really happy just, like, bounding across this huge ice field even though, you know, it's being pursued by this helicopter and somebody's shooting wildly and terribly. I mean, yeah, nice job. The apocalypse could have been averted, but you just couldn't shoot your gun decently. And then you blew up the helicopter. (laughs) He blows up the helicopter. It's just like, what else could this guy do?
0: And then he ends up, you know, he like shoots Bennings in the leg by accident. You know, I I can't believe he shot Peter Maloney in the leg. I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, like right off the bat. Then he tries to explain to the guys of Outpost 31 what is going on. And it's in his native tongue. You know, they don't speak his language, so they don't understand what he's saying. But he actually lays out the entire film to them. Yeah. So if they understood what he was saying, they could have stopped it once again. But they don't. You know, and what do we have? We have someone from Outpost 31 with a hole in their leg. Doesn't look too good, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's the kind of problem that we have in this movie is that I think things keep just getting messed up. Mm -hmm. I mean, over and over. And this part with the Norwegian felt like Tower of Babel kind of situation where, you know, you have all these people. They can't communicate with each other, so they can't avert crisis.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they can't communicate, but what can men do? Violence, right? (laughs) So Gary, you know, comes and he shoots the Norwegian as the Norwegian is pursuing the animal and trying to take it out and save the world.
1: And then you have Clark, played by Richard Mazur, who loves dogs Mm -hmm. you know he's like closer to animals than humans so he's like instantly protective of this malamute dog Mm -hmm. and you know then lets the dog wander around the camp for the rest of the day you know rubbing up against everyone including bennings with his open wound yeah so lots of mistakes were made The thing is really
0: terrible, because it does seem so nice and loving to these guys of Outpost 31 from the very beginning. You know, it's like, save me. Save me from this crazy man with a gun.
1: And again, it looks happy. I would have taken it (laughs) in, too. I would have been like, this dog is great.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's like you're on the side of the animal. So it's, yeah,
1: it's, it's a hairy situation. The thing was very smart to choose that form. Yeah. I mean, it's just so nice. Yeah, and people, you know, a lot of people love dogs. Um, If he rolled up in there with, like, the cockroach legs and the stalk head that we see later, might have been a different story again. But he looks like this floofy, happy, you know, excited dog. Of course, nobody wants to get rid of that.
0: I mean, like if we saw a chow chow, right? Oh, forget it. You know, if somebody was shooting at a chow chow. Oh my god. Exactly. You know. Can we you would...
1: imagine? You would have. She would have instantly killed them. I would
0: have called up Gary. But like Gary, this <laughs> person needs to go.
1: I mean, Gary. What if Gary had been in the helicopter? He's a good shot. He is a good shot. He could have done something here. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's just they didn't have the right people, you know, for the right job. <laughs> And so I mean, we end up in this place with all these men and this testosterone, and just like I said, you know, it's just again when you have men together and they don't have any sense of like I don't know decency, cleanliness, anything anymore. Well, civilization—they've
1: lost civilization here. Yes, there's, yes. There's no need for any of like the niceties. They don't have you know, television. They don't really have any link to the outside world. We see them watching TV on videotapes. Right. You know, and so, yeah, they're just very detached. And in one respect, that could be good because it could be something where they stop everything here, but uh, we don't know that that's what happens, and that's why this is the first of John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. Yeah. Um, yeah, because things, you know... The world here is at risk, and we're looking at kind of this last holdout before it takes over the entire planet. I mean, this had come from a spaceship, right? So the first first part of the movie, actually, even before the helicopter, is this kind of spaceship footage. Yeah. And that was really cool as a model that was done by Susan Turner who worked with Peter Coran on some of the visual effects. And she was like a model maker and one of the few female model makers, which I thought was actually really interesting. Um, and she made this model spaceship, which comes in and kind of crashes into Antarctica. And we later find out that that isn't something that just happened. <laughs> you know, that's something that happened like many, many thousands of years ago. And it's actually just been trapped under the ice this whole time. And the Norwegians had found it and dug it out and that, you know, woke up the thing, which had been frozen there for however long. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I've also read a lot of different things about where climate change is happening. There are like bacteria and things like locked into the glacial ice. And as that ice melts, these things are released you know, back into the atmosphere, and they have been frozen, like, cryogenically. So they kind of come back to life, and that could, you know, bring new species of bacteria that we don't currently have because they've just been trapped in this ice for thousands of years.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, what I thought about was the film from 1951, and the creature, the thing, was in this block of ice, You know, that's where they had the thing, you know. And when they go to the Norwegian camp to investigate, they actually see, you know, just this hollowed out, I don't know what you want to call it, ice coffin, ice block. Yeah. And the room looked very similar to what we saw in the Howard Hawks film.
1: Yeah, it was kind of like an homage to that. Although, like, John Carpenter wanted to really avoid like the, the man-in-a-suit type of creature um, and go with different things, which is, you know, what Rob Bottin definitely was able to achieve.
0: Oh, yeah. There's no man in the suit I mean, what's the closest thing we have? I, I think the closest thing we have to that would be uh, the piece that Stan Winston's people did, um, which is the dog, because they had it as a puppet. Mm-hmm. And there were people under the floor working, right? You know that kind of you know thing, dog, wolf, beast. I don't know what you would call it. You I know? don't know
1: either. But it was so gross because it's like all slimy and it's oh, like yeah. like these tubes that look like bloody intestines are coming out of it and stuff. It's totally foul. Um, But I think that the Blair kind of beast at the end Oof. is kind of man in a suit thing, but not. I mean, again, it is another visual effect, and there was a little bit of stop motion with the tentacle um, piece that did make it into the movie. There's a lot more that didn't, Um, but that at least has, like, some partial human form, but there's a lot of insectile kind of stuff going on, which I'm super creeped out by, and, you know, when the initial, like, Norwegian dog does his transformation It is nuts. Like the face splits into like these petals and it almost looks like plant-like again. So I don't know if that was meant to be an homage to like the plant-like alien from the 1951 movie. But I did see like a kind of a gory plant in that kind of uh, dog transformation. And then like all those little whip-like tendrils that are coming out. Yeah. It reminded me of a really disgusting version of like that toy that we had when we were kids that would spray water. Do you remember what this was? I don't. It was like a, I don't know what it was called. Maybe it was called like a wet willy or something, but. It like you would hook it onto your garden hose. Oh yeah,
0: outside. Yes, I know we're talking about. Yeah, and
1: it would like spray water, but it had like these long tubes, so the tubes would like you know flip and flop around, and that's what I kind of thought about with that dog when it started transforming because it's shooting on all these little whip-like tendrils, and it was super gross.
0: Well, I think the grossest thing in the entire film, but my favorite thing is what happens with Norris.
1: Oh, God. I think that is one of the most amazing sequences I've ever seen in any movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Norris, played by Charles Hallihan, has had like a heart condition and he just kind of has this natural death and they bring him into, you know, their medical area And Dr. Copper, which is played by Richard Dysart, is trying to revive him. And as he puts the paddles of the defibrillator to his chest the second time, it collapses his chest cavity and traps his hands, traps uh, Dr. Copper's hands, chops his arms off. And then, like, after that, which is freaking disgusting enough, His head, like, starts detaching of its own accord, slides off the table. It looks like, I don't know, egg yolks are, like, exploding in his neck. And then he, his beheaded, you know, his decapitated head is on the ground, uh, shoots out, like, one of these tendrils and starts dragging itself forward. It, like, hides under the desk. Then it sprouts, like, six gross lobster legs or something and little crab eyes and starts, like, crab walking out the door, leading to Palmer's line.
0: You've got to be fucking kidding.
1: Which is the best line of the movie. (laughs) They told a little story about, uh, about that and... Richard Mazur was like you got to get that you got to get coverage on Palmer saying that because that's going to be like the best part of it and Carter's like oh I don't need it I've I've got what I wanted and he's like no you got to do it you got to do it so he took that shot and they ended up using it and of course it is like the funniest thing (laughs) in the entire movie because you're watching this you know you just go through the whole sequence which is absolutely horrifying and then you know this thing walks out and and it looks like A crab and then Kurt Russell shoots it with you know this flamethrower that was something I found very funny in the movie is that they just keep shooting things with a flamethrower and the whole building doesn't burn down it's just like politely goes out
0: (laughs) I like that very much as well and I also you know did note that I was like oh that's very interesting (laughs) I mean they use that
1: flamethrower on the dogs fine it seems like plenty of time goes by, then they shoot the little weird crab beast with it. That's in the hallway. Nobody's, you know, the whole building doesn't burn down, even though everything must be connected to that. And then later on, after they do the blood test scene, they shoot, you know, more flamethrower again. And one guy, you know, Palmer actually was the thing there. He runs out of the building on fire nothing's burning just him it's (laughs) fine and then they burn up uh the character windows who he had attacked still doesn't burn down the building like they don't really get the building is safe until like they actually use dynamite on it so i don't know if it's just like non-flammable or if the flamethrower again is just a very polite instrument (laughs)
0: very possible, that's very possible that it that it's polite. You know, when you talk about all of these crazy effect scenes, you know, with these transformations, I mean I just want to jump back to what happened with Norris because that scene, I, I don't know how they did that so well. I mean, we heard them talk about it and they talked about how Hallahan who played Norris, they had to have him sitting still for like eight hours, yeah. right mm-hmm. for, for them to get the, this particular shot. And when they went to do it the first time, it just it wasn't up to snuff. It didn't really happen. And, and then you know they had to, they had to go back again. I was like, oh wow, that's so crazy. And I mean, you talked about you know Norris looking like like a crab to you. For me, it, it felt more like a spider. I felt mm. like it was it was a spider, but it was like you know the legs that came out. You, you know, they almost they were like bones. I felt like they almost came to little points. Yeah. You know, it's terrifying. And and then you have Norris's head upside down on the thing. Oh my God! I mean, the thing. Woof. I, I mean, I'd say the scariest one for me would be when we have Bennings outside with these massive claw hands and you can tell that he's still human. You can tell that there's part of him that realizes that, that oh my God, look at my hands. And then there's part of him that's the alien
1: and then they just burn him. Yeah, it's, oh. it's really awful because I agree like you see like this haunted look in his face and Mm -hmm. his eyes. And that actor has like really big round, like expressive eyes anyway. yeah, And he just looks so horrified at what's happening to him. Mm -hmm. Like he seems very conscious and cognizant of what's going on. Yeah. And it's, it's disturbing like on a very visceral level because it's not the same as other, you know, scary creature movies where you're just getting attacked by like this vicious beast, you know, you in this case are getting taken over, so it's like your body isn't even yours anymore, and it could be happening without you even knowing it at first. I mean, I think that this is kind of what's happening with Blair when he goes crazy. Um, I happen to really love that scene. Um, Wilfred Brimley as Blair is Blair probably my favorite character because we see him like kind of modeling the communicability of this kind of disease um they look you know he's kind of looking at the thing as a disease as it's taking people over and he's you know modeling it on the computer and finding out that there's only x number of days before the entire world could be infected and part of him, you know, has to wonder, is he infected? And at the same time, he's thinking, there's no way out of this for us. So he starts sabotaging the equipment. He tears up the helicopter so it's non-functional. They can't escape. They already can't communicate with the outside world. And he just starts going totally shithouse on everybody. Yeah. You know, people come in and they're like, Blair's gone crazy. They go to check it out. You know, McCready, Kurt Russell, is trying to stop him. And he's, like, you know, using an axe to, like, chop into this table that McCready's holding. I mean, he could have easily killed him. He's shooting at people. He's going nuts. And part of it is because he's terrified. And part of it is also because even though he's completely terrified, he's also trying to stop this creature from what he knows could happen.
0: Yeah. I I mean, it's a very, very hard realization when you know that you have something that you can't control and you know that if you let it get away that everyone's dead yeah and the way that they lay it out on the computer that you actually are able to read this information that says if this gets out everyone's dead you really then understand the full weight of what is at stake here yeah and Wilfred brimley is so even throughout his performance. I mean, yes, he's crotchety, he may be upset, but he's even. He has, you know, logic. That's something that he employs throughout. Mm -hmm. And he just goes straight through every situation.
1: Yeah, he's not like some of the younger guys, like Palmer and, and Windows, who... Kind of are a little bit emotional and bitchy, right. I would say. And they get into little tips with each other and stuff. And, you know, Blair kind of handles everything, like, as it comes. Like, when he's examining the creature and kind of doing the autopsy, he's cutting it open, he's looking at the organs, he's like, okay, you know, he's thinking through what this is, but he's really the first one who catches on to what this is capable of.
0: Yeah, Blair is like a detective. He's the one that starts the investigation when he's speaking with Clark. He's trying to find out where was the dog? How long did you leave the dog alone? What happened? He's trying to look for humanity in Clark. Mm -hmm. And Clark is a very stoic character. He seems to be very much an outsider in the group. He's very quiet. And that can make people very uncomfortable, particularly when you're trapped together somewhere. If you don't know what someone is thinking to begin with, that's scary. And now you add in an element that that person actually could be, you know, this chameleon killer. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, and and he did have the most access, or the thing did kind of have the most access to Clark. So everybody kind of suspects him uh, initially.
0: So it's really interesting, we have 12 men at Outpost 31, you know, so it's like, I never realized there's that many people, like, I try to count, and I'm like, really, there's 12?
1: I always leave one out, I always count, like, 11 every (laughs) single time. I don't know who I'm leaving out, it's not the same one every time, but I I keep leaving one out. I know, it does seem like there are a lot at the beginning, but, you know, pretty soon that gets taken care of. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like natural selection, I guess. You know, everybody just kind of goes down one at a time.
1: Yeah, but you pointed out something really, really interesting about a connection with this and another movie that I never would have put together with this. Well, it's just the number 12, right? That's the thing that brought it to mind. So And men. Uh, yeah, well,
0: yes, of course, and men. So what I'm talking about, of course, is the film Twelve Angry Men. And what do we have in that film? We have 12 angry men in a room. Most of the film is spent in just this jury room. You know, it's kind of tight room. You know, they have like a scene at the beginning. You know, you get an exterior, then you have a wrap-up at the end. But the bulk of the film is spent in this very hot jury room, you know, in a New York City summer. So, I mean, it couldn't be much different, you know, than here in terms of temperature. But we do have very different personalities we've got 12 distinct men in there that are duking it out yeah you know everyone has a reason for what they're doing just like here no one really trusts anyone correct you know so it's a very creepy situation now what really really takes it over the edge for me is the tagline okay so the tagline of 12 angry men and this was on the poster is life is in their hands death is on their minds It explodes like 12 sticks of
1: dynamite. Well, first of all, that makes 12 Angry Men seem like a badass action movie (laughs) instead of like a courtroom drama, basically. So I kind of love that. I love that they're like bringing you in with like the super actiony, you know, tagline. But it honestly like feels like it applies more to the thing than it does to Twelve Angry Men, which is hilarious. Right.
0: I mean, they could have put on this uh, poster. They could have said, "These twelve men are really bringing the heat." (laughs) (laughs) You know. I mean, because you know the hot New York summer. But yeah, I mean, it's really weird how we have that and Dynamite figures into this so heavily.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's really funny. How, yeah, that's, that movie is set in a super hot summer. Right. And if I remember correctly, like, people are sweating and it's, like, super hot in the room. Yeah. And then, you know, we have the exact opposite where there are people are in, like, an ice box at the bottom of the world <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> so I do want to mention that most of the actors in this film were really theater guys, um, who came from, you know, Juilliard, ACT, Yale Drama School, and even Donald Moffat, I guess, was a Shakespearean um, for, and, and studied at maybe RADA. So, like, all of these guys, except for Kurt Russell, had a huge theater background. Yeah. Um, and I think that super plays into this movie because it is kind of, like, theatrical. You've got kind of just one one set uh, and it is complicated there's a lot of different parts of this building that they're in but they're really in one location the whole time and it does have kind of a play kind of a feel to it and I guess though their rehearsal process kind of capitalized somewhat on that as well um, with the theater background of these guys.
0: Yes, John Carpenter insisted on a two-week rehearsal process. And so all of these guys were together, and they worked, and they explored. And one of the big questions throughout the entire process is, who is the thing? When did you become the thing? How does it feel? You know, they, they wanted to get really to the heart of it. So when they came to the location, it would be something where all that work had already been laid in. You can definitely feel that there is camaraderie. With these guys, they do feel like brothers. You know, you have moments where you feel like, oh, they're friends, or oh, they want to murder each other. You know, <laughs> it's all it's all in the spirit of brotherhood.
1: I mean, that happens when you're in play with people too, for yeah. sure. But I think that you know, it was funny because Kurt Russell is a TV guy. You know, he had grown up on being on TV and being in some movies and stuff. And really hadn't done a play. And by the end of this, all these guys that he was working with had kind of talked him into, hey, you need to go do a play. Right. And he did. Um, Because, you know, he just had such a relationship with these guys over the course of this movie. Um, But, yeah, it was, I think that, like, also the fact that this was, like, this crazy location shoot, um, you know, and they did do the interiors at Universal Studio as well. But they did a lot of work outdoors on site in Alaska and British Columbia. And going through those types of conditions does kind of draw people together as well.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, if you feel like you don't know if you're going to make it, I I mean, and that did happen. You know, where they were at, it was such a terrible location in terms of travel. It was a 25-mile ride, roughly, I think from, you know, the hotel to the set. And when they did that, they actually went up these roads that, you know, were basically one lane. If a truck was coming down, it wasn't going to stop for them. It it was going to knock them off the cliff. You know, this is like an ice road truckers (laughs) type of thing. You know, it's like a reality show. Yeah. They actually had a story that one time on the way to the set, the bus actually kind of jackknifed, and the back wheel went off the edge, went off this cliff. I mean, this is like a movie, and you could feel it kind of teetering, like, oh, my God, we're going to go over And at that point, Kurt Russell really became McCready. He really became the leader. He took charge and started telling people, you know, what to do to make sure they kept the balance. Thomas Waits was in the back of the bus, and he goes, Thomas, get up. You know, actually, he said, get down. He said, get down on your hands and knees and crawl over here. And he had everyone kind of crawl over, you know, one by one, you know, so that they could even out the bus.
1: And then they moved it back onto the road. Um, and, and they were able to go on, but this would have been like a, I don't know, they said like a thousand feet down, Oh my God! you know, and, and it's terrifying and all the, all the, the actors were on this bus. So it was pretty wild. Um, and then you did all that before you went
0: in for a 12 hour plus day, you know, and I mean, they had heaters actually at the location, you know, cause they did some interior work up there. But the problem was, when they turned on these heaters, it would melt the snow on the roof, so they couldn't yeah. use it.
1: So they just were all bundled up, and they were just freezing cold all the time. Yeah. And they, that didn't get better when they came to L.A. to shoot interiors on the sets, because they actually were refrigerating the sets down to almost freezing. So you would be in these sets filming scenes at 32 degrees or whatever so that they could see your breath. And then the actors would have to go outside where it was like over 100 with all of this cold weather gear on. So it was just a physically challenging shoot all the way through whether it was on location or at the studio. And that definitely tends to bond people together.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine coming out of this freezer... You know, into this hundred degree temperature, wearing these these thick clothes, but you know what happened is they just stopped changing out of their costume because you know it took so long. They're just like, all right, I'm just going to eat and you know get back in there. And then people started getting sick, you know, which is crazy. You know, you go to hot to cold like that, yeah. You know, it's going to get you. Well, the other thing that was crazy, and we had never noticed this before. Um, was Keith David told the story of how he actually got into a car accident. He actually totaled his car and he broke part of his hand. So he had like a a cast on, you know, and it was like, I don't know what they did. They put a glove on it. He just tried to hide his hand.
1: Yeah, they kind of did some kind of makeup and a glove or whatever. And he just kind of was keeping his left hand hidden for most of the shoot. Wow. Yeah, I never noticed that before. But then, as soon as we heard them, I think, I think that that came out first for us in the commentary with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter,
0: which is incredible.
1: And we were like, "What?" And then we just kept looking, and like every shot with Keith David, he's like holding his left hand out of frame or behind him or kind of under something. It was really funny. He did a great job. Oh yeah, you know, working around it because I never would have noticed.
0: No, I never would have saw it. I mean, the same thing goes with Kurt Russell when they're actually doing the blood testing scene. <sighs> right? Right before, you know, he puts the, uh, the wire into like the Petri dish of Palmer's blood. You know, what happens there is, is, you know, Kurt Russell has a fake hand, you know, because, you know, all the effects come and that the stuff jumps out of that dish. So it's like, I never noticed that.
1: No, I didn't either. But as soon again, as soon as they told me, I was like every single time I could see it. It was hilarious.
0: Yeah. And they also had, you know, some real physical altercations in this. You know, I mean, all the guys, you know, had tensions with other people, you know, yeah. that built up. I mean, one of the biggest moments that I can think of is when they were trying to decide who would be the leader of the group, and Childs was like, I'll be the leader, right? Then Clark comes up, pulls a knife, and is like, no. You know what I mean? You're like, wow. You know, like, things really escalated.
1: Well, I mean, McCready says, oh, no, we need somebody who's a little more even-tempered. I mean, that is a very tense scene yeah, because, you know, it's like they very much have to confront who do they trust Mm -hmm. at that point. And the answer is they really don't trust anybody. Like none of them can trust any of the others. No.
0: And I mean, even McCready, who is their leader, they're not sure that they can trust him because we actually have that scene where Knowles is like, I found, you know, part of McCready's uniform. Right. And it was ripped up and it's like and it was hidden. So it's like, oh, wow, MacReady is the thing.
1: And he locks them out in like the storm. So, you know, MacReady doesn't die, obviously, because it's Kurt Russell and he's the head of the star of the movie. But it you know that it's a death sentence to leave somebody out in that cold like that. in a whiteout.
0: Well, and I mean, again, I mean, it's like. They find Kurt Russell, you know what I mean? And he's just white, white, white. He looks like he's dead already. And he's holding a flare in this bundle of dynamite so that he can get his way and get back into the building. He is ready to kill everyone. I mean, this this is where we're at. I mean, you're watching a movie, so sometimes I think with some of these stakes, you aren't always fully aware of it. You don't really think... Oh, yeah. Again, because like you said, Kurt Russell is your lead. Is he really going to blow up? Are all these people going to blow up? No. We still got time left on the clock here for this movie. But it's terrifying. I mean, they are ready to kill each other at every turn. And as you mentioned, you know, with Wilford Brimley, with Blair... When they charge Blair, I mean, that's that's kind of like, uh, you know, like riot police. You know what I mean? When they come in, because like when Kurt Russell comes in with that massive lunchroom table is like a shield. Yeah. Right. And then that axe comes through. Oh, my God. I mean, that axe. Yeah. Ah. And
1: well, then. Yeah. We talked a lot about like there being kind of a a, a shining vibe that whole deal because the sabotaging of the equipment and and the helicopter that Blair did is similar to what happens in The Shining. Yep. Where Jack Nicholson's character, um Jack Torrance goes out and sabotages the snow cat so that they can't get away from the hotel. So again, they're trapped in the snowy you know, place that they can't escape from. Right. And then, of course, you know, an axe going through wood. Just any time I see that, I'm going to think, here's Johnny.
0: Well, we also have Keith David, another scene actually taking out a door with the axe. Yeah. You know, so it's like we have all of these beats.
1: Yeah. And, And the isolation and paranoia theme is a big deal in The Shining, as well as this. And it's like isolation in the snow, as well.
0: Well, and also in The Shining, I mean, there are ghosts, right? And we could say, you know, the house is alive, that is the evil, right? But I, I mean, you don't necessarily see what the ultimate evil is. You see these different ghosts. You know, but you don't see what it is that's actually after you. What is this ultimate evil? Yeah. And, and it has, you know, again, that that in common with the thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and that also, there is kind of a, a takeover uh, of a person, kind of a thing going on in there. But it's just handled in a different way. And it's really interesting. But with this, all these people are basically equal in a way. Whereas mm-hmm. in The Shining, that's not the case. You you know, when Jack gets taken over kind of by the house or by the hotel, rather, it's something where he's kind of the head of the family and who else is left is a child and the mother. In this, it's like all these guys and they're all basically on the same footing. So if one of them gets taken over... The other ones can band together and take them out. I think about that scene when they're outside um, burning, um, trying to just get rid of everything that is from the thing. And McCready says, like, he has this big speech, which is really awesome, where he says, like, I know that I'm human You know, and if all the rest of you were the thing, then you would just attack me and I would be dead. So I know that some of you also must be human. And it just kind of opens that door to be thinking, like, who's who? Who goes there? (laughs) (laughs) As the title of the original story, you know, implies. You have all these people. Anyone could be infected, You don't know who's safe, and you don't know how long that you can be safe. And it's scary.
0: Well, and the people that seem to be knowledgeable, you know, are the ones that seem to be the most susceptible. Because, you know, when you see someone like Blair go over the edge, and then, you know, they put him into that shed, when he is in that shed... He goes even more crazy. He is so disturbing. When McCready goes back and he opens the little, you know, I I don't know what you want to call that, peephole, you know, little porthole in the door to take a look at Blair. And then we actually see a noose swinging next to Blair. And Blair's like, yeah, I'm okay now. I'd I'd just like to come inside, you know? There's anything wrong, I'm I'm okay now. And you're just like, Oh my God. Like this guy, you can't you can't go ahead, you know, and trust him. And and this was the person at the beginning that was giving you all of this information on the thing. Yeah. You know, in terms of the anatomy, in terms of what was going on. He was the one again that kind of begins this investigation of who is the thing.
1: He you seemed know? very trustworthy and very reliable. Yeah. And then like he you know he transforms, and as we find out later, he's been taken over just about the entire time he's like dug out a tunnel underneath <laughs> that room. he's like built a spaceship basically out of scrap parts. I mean, I was like kind of what happened here? yeah, <laughs> because like they go under this you know they go into to to check Blair um to do the blood test on him. And he's not in the room anymore. So then they go under, they find like this hidden room that I have to assume has just been made since Blair has been in there. And he's built all of this stuff up. And I'm like, how did he get these parts? Like, what is this guy doing? To how, how fast does he work? And it was really interesting, interesting kind of thought to think that, you know, Blair... At the Blair thing hybrid you know I guess that I find Blair to be a really intelligent kind of character so it feels like when the thing combined with him it kind of was able to make this kind of hybrid creature that was really capable of achieving a lot of work you know Um, And that seems to be what happened. And it's absolutely terrifying when we see Blair show up again, you know, when they're kind of walking around in the building and Blair shows up and like grabs Gary. (laughs) It scares the crap out of me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it does turn into, you know, a straight horror film. I mean, it makes you you think back to Halloween. You know, it's just like this expressionless face. And he's taking people out one at a time. I mean, it's. Well, and you also have to think about the fact that, you know, Blair Thing has all of these things that the thing has been. So when we finally see what all Blair Thing is.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like mid transformation. He's got like this thing growing out the side of his head, half the head is Blair. Like, he's got half the torso of Blair, half the torso is turning into something else, the bottom half is tentacles, and then the dog creature kind of explodes out of the chest. And, you know, it's it's bizarre. Like, the transformation that this creature is able to do, it can turn into any of these things, but it seems like it almost gets confused, when it's doing it, because it has too much data, or something, and then it has like all these pieces, and it doesn't know how to make sense out of what it's supposed to be. It's really weird.
0: It's very interesting because just as all the humans are confused about are they infected, who are they? You know, it, it seems that the thing also shares that as well, because it's you know it's in a different place. Yeah. You know that this is not. You know, this is not the home. You know what I mean? Uh, It's very, very, very scary.
1: I didn't even think about that until right now. But, I mean, yeah, it is possible that this alien creature is, like, traumatized because it crashed. It's been frozen and dead, you know, effectively for thousands of years. And then when it's suddenly violently woken up, it doesn't know what's going on. It's, you know, it could be terrified. So, you know, now you're sympathetic. Now you feel bad for that fella.
0: (laughs) So another person that we should talk about is Albert Whitlock. Now, Albert Whitlock is a genius, okay? <laughs> he worked with Alfred Hitchcock countless times.
1: Another one of John Carpenter's mad heroes.
0: Right? So, I mean, I'm sure he would jump at the chance to get someone of this caliber. I mean, this guy is incredible. I mean, he worked on The Birds. He worked on Marnie. He worked on Torn Curtain, Topaz. He also dipped his toe in the James Bond pool with Diamonds or Forever. Oh, wow. Right? frenzy family plot he did dune you know the david lynch dune that's wild right and he also worked on clue
1: uh, right clue, coming soon to a podcast near you wink wink wah,
0: wah. and deborah hill worked on that too oh I, wow see i love how all this comes together so you know albert whitlock is a matte painter of the, the highest order. So he works in a way that he calls original negative. And what this means is that he will actually take the undeveloped film, they'll take a small piece of it, and they will do all of the work that they need to do on that film, you know, and then they will develop it and they'll have the image there because it's just it's incredible. You know, I hope I explained that correctly because it's so it's so wild to me. But yeah, I I mean, these guys are able to make the impossible possible with what they do. It's completely seamless. So I'll point it out. So when they actually have the scene where they go to the crater, okay, we see the guys coming up to the crater, and we see this enormous, you know, frozen tundra. Okay, they were basically on like a white carpet, a small kind of white carpet. And what happened there is he painted in that entire background, you That's know, he, amazing. right. And you could never tell it's just done so expertly, you know, and then when they're actually, you know, in the crater, okay. And they're approaching the alien spaceship. The only real thing on that spaceship that was there was like the hatch in the center of the spaceship. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Everything else was painted in. So it's just like, wow i mean this guy you just can't say enough good things about i mean he even worked for hitchcock uncredited you know when he was just a scenic artist he was an uncredited scenic artist on jamaica Inn, the lady vanishes young and innocent sabotage and the 39 steps
1: wow so he goes way back i mean those are some old movies That's pretty cool. Yeah, the spaceship scene, like, I think if they had done it a different way, it it wouldn't have been as impressive, honestly. Yeah. Because sometimes when you see, like, people interacting with the miniature, it ends up feeling kind of weird. But with the matte painting in this case, it's done so realistically that I really couldn't even tell. No, I, I never
0: knew. I never had any idea of any of this. I would have
1: thought we were dealing with, like, you know, a life-size, you know, Millennium Falcon type thing or something.
0: Right? I'm right with you. I thought it was completely real. Never even thought about it. That shows how good he is at his job. So, Albert Whitlock, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely incredible. (laughs) Has a billion more credits. Please look him up and praise him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a very technically proficient movie in a lot of ways not you know we've talked a lot about the creature effects um which i would say are highly technically proficient oh, yeah. even though you know Botine was like this young guy when he's working on it it looks amazing um and so well thought out and and clearly done and then we have like a very skilled chaos who have theater background they're excellent actors um but we also have dean Cundey, again, as the cinematographer and lighter, and what he was able to bring to the table here, as usual, is pretty unbelievable. If it wasn't for Dean Cundy, we wouldn't be able to see these Rob Bottin <laughs> effects, because apparently Rob Bottin had some issues with some different things that he had done, and he didn't want the creatures to be shown in bright light. Um, he was like, oh no, he wanted everything to be dark. And Dean Cundy was like, no, <laughs> we're going to have to light this. So it's not just what Rob Boutine did. It's what Dean Cundey did with Rob Boutine's work and how he illuminated it and made it look and made it work um, within the context of the movie. It's really well, well done. And I personally love the blue tent that he uses in a lot of the outdoor um, footage. So like he wanted to use that blue tent and he found like these blue kind of bulbs that they use uh, for airport lights and had to use those. And it gives kind of the whole thing a real otherworldly look to me, like especially the blue tent that this has it has kind of an unnatural quality to it. and it, it But it also has like this icy quality to it, a real cool, cold feel, which of course fits with the location as well.
0: Well, you also can think about if these are things that came, you know, from an airport, right, that it's almost subliminally saying to you, this would be a good landing spot for more aliens right <laughs> this is this is your beacon.
1: that's what they would be drawn to maybe. yeah yeah
0: so it's I, I mean it's really 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 smart with Dean cundy. I mean I, I mean again he went on to work with Spielberg you know he and his crew you know big time you, you don't get better. Than being able to work in in these really you know challenging conditions and and, and you know it was like when you talked about Rob Botine, he would say not only don't light it but just don't light this part of it yeah you
1: know, like oh, I don't like what I did with this part or whatever I mean it just shows like his perfectionistic tendency right you know and I can super relate to that sure. you know you want to just had this thing that you did and. And you really sometimes can look perfect, be the enemy of good. And, you know, I think Carpenter was a a little crotchety about the speed by which some of the things were getting completed, (laughs) you know, because it was affecting their schedule. Um, But honestly, if it wasn't for the Botine creature effects, this movie would not be what it is. I mean, it did throw people off. At first, I mean, some of the interesting things that we heard them talk about were, you know, this was really John Carpenter's first kind of big budget film. He had done a lot of indie stuff up to this point. And because Halloween had made so much money, they were willing to give him a crack at a real budget. So he had 15 million to make this, which for him is like a mint. yeah. And that really meant that they were able to go out and do some things that they had never been able to do before, including, you know, work with a studio and all that studio's resources but unfortunately this came out about two weeks after et and nobody really cared for it that much um, it didn't make a lot of money people complained a lot about the creature effects in particular said it was super gory called carpenter somebody called carpenter a pornographer of violence <laughs> which i think he was very upset by you know and there was a question that a lot too because you know yes there's violence in this but you know these people are fighting for their lives so is it really i mean i don't know there's a real question mark there um but you know i think that everybody's kind of consensus is That a big part of the issue is that two weeks earlier, this friendly alien movie, E.T., had come out. Everybody adored it. And then, you know, you have this, on June 25th, you have this, you know, scary alien movie come out. And people, you know, were kind of thrown off (laughs) by having those in the same proximity. But I, I don't think that's fair. They're two totally different movies, You know, I mean, E.T. is supposed to be like a family friendly, you know, it's really a kid's movie. And the thing is certainly not, you know, it's a it's a terror movie and it's really dealing with some really amazing themes really well. Of isolation and paranoia and fear, depression.
0: Yeah, I mean, and also we're dealing with a lot of substance abuse. I mean, oh hell yeah! Like everyone has their own bottle. I mean, I haven't seen you know (laughs) any movies like that. You know, everybody is just getting it going one way or the other. And it, it's just like they want to numb themselves. They just can't deal with anything anymore. I mean, our, you know, what do we see with MacReady, right? We, we see him just pouring this whiskey, sitting at a computer, playing chess. The computer beats him. He just loses it. And he just dumps his full whiskey with ice into the mainframe of the computer, destroying it. I mean, this is not... It's not rational thought with any of these people. And it's funny because you brought up The Shining earlier and what happened in The Shining? The alcohol, right? That's what the house tempted them with. I mean, and when we're dealing with the thing, the alcohol is already present and they're already pissed off at
1: each other. Yeah, they're already mad. There's already a lot of like bad juju between these guys. And the more that they are afraid and the more that they're drinking yeah. and all these things, it's not making things any better.
0: No. I In the Howard Hawks film, we actually had some women at the base. Yeah. And it seemed to, you know, make it that the men would like... You know, be maybe slightly
1: more human sometimes, but it still was creepy. It felt more professional, like it felt like they were at a workplace.
0: Well, kind of. Think about, you know, the one scene where the guy goes in and I, I can't remember the names of the characters, so I'm a loser. Okay, but this guy comes in and he's talking to one of the women on the base and they talk about getting really drunk one night And what happened, and it seemed like, you know, they had some kind of...
1: Well, they were... It seemed like they were kind of dating, or that he wanted to be dating her.
0: He was coming on pretty heavy. Well, it was... Yeah. It's 1951.
1: What do you expect? But, like...
0: I guess. I mean, it was just weird to me. Like, well, I don't know what's going on here. Well,
1: but I think that, you know, there was a very strong sense, to me, at least, in that movie, that we were dealing with, like, people who worked for the military, you know, and everybody kind of had more of like an orderly way of handling things. Mm. Like there was a protocol that was being followed. With this, um, we, we're at like a research base and people are doing research. There's scientists, you know, McCready, the kind of backstory that's not in the film but that Russell and Carpenter kind of came up with is that he maybe used to be a Vietnam helicopter pilot. And, you know, he's working in, in this deserted kind of place, um, but with that background and, and probably has PTSD and things like that, which I thought was a pretty interesting backstory. But for the most part, these guys, like, seem pretty loose <laughs> about the way that things are going. Yeah. Like, Palmer does not seem military in any way. Like, no. this is a guy who Palmer and, and Windows both, I think I could very safely say just seem like real counterculture type guys. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, Donald Moffat's character, he's different. Like Gary, he's different. He seems more like he could be kind of a military style leader.
0: He almost looks like one of the actual actors from the thing from another.
1: Yes, that's true. He does, but he, he kind of has, you know, there's, there's more to him with like this organization orderliness. But that super falls apart, you know, as things start to go. And he can't really be the leader that they need. Right. He, he like, kind of admits that. And that's when Mac ends up taking over.
0: Well, yeah, they end up without any options. And it's so hard to imagine you're in this life-and-death situation in the middle of nowhere. Your communication's gone. You know, I, I mean when they actually do the blood test scene, you talked about it, but I, I want to go back to that. Yeah, because, that's a
1: hugely pivotal scene. Yeah.
0: That to me is the scene that, you know, I talked about Norris and I do always remember, you know, those, <laughs> those, the jaws of the stomach clamping down. Oh, let's oh, talk yeah. about that too. Okay. So Rob Bottin talked about how they actually did that stunt and it was actually a practical effect. So, when Dysart does the paddles, okay, you know, what they had is they actually hired someone who only had half of their arms, and then they made, like, these fake arms with, like, some wax and, like, you know, some kind of veins, some blood, so those those jaws actually did slam shut, and, you know, then the blood sprayed everywhere. Now... When you saw Dysart, this was the craziest part, okay? it They made a mold of Dysart's face and put it on this amputee that was his stand-in. Now, that is seamless. I, I've never seen that
1: unbelievable, ever. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The way that it, I mean... You don't think about it, no. not for a second.
0: Wax bones, like blood, like what? I mean, these <laughs> you, just right there. I you mean, you could wow. have told
1: me that they just were like, "Yeah, we're just gonna have to chop your arms off for this, Eisert," <laughs> right? and he was just like, "Well, you got to do what you got to do." Right? And I would have, I would probably bought it. I mean, like it's so real. I mean, it's. I, I mean, yeah,
0: we have that, which is such a tense scene. I mean, every action set piece in this just ratchets it up. Even more. You really don't know where you're going. And watching it, I was like, oh, wait, who is the thing here? I like, you don't remember because there's so many things to make you think, oh, it's this person. Oh, it's this person. So the blood test scene.
1: And then that's, yeah, and the blood test scene is where we get like the suspense.
0: You know, what's interesting is, like, when they have, like, this heated, you know, exposed wire that they put into the Petri dish with each person's sample of blood. You know, when it goes in there and, you know, it's not the thing, you kind of hear that, you know, and you get a little sizzle. Yeah. And you feel, like, great about it. You're like, all (laughs) right, one more is okay. You're like, like, all
1: right, yeah. Because really only one of them was infected at this point.
0: Oh, yeah. And everybody thought that that person was Clark. And Clark was fine, which means they just shot a guy in the head. Now, that had to happen because Clark was literally, literally going to commit murder. This was self-defense, and it had to go down. But, I mean, I I think that, honestly, you know, if you found out, even if you had to kill someone in self-defense, you were them... You know, if you found out that they were human as opposed to being this thing, I think your your heart, like your stomach would just sink like 6,000 levels. You yeah. know, I would just be like, oh, my God.
1: Well, and the way that they shot that scene was so interesting, too. And I never noticed this, but we did a commentary track with Dean Cundy where he talked about wanting to give kind of like a visual cue of who might be infected. And what they did was that they made sure that in every character, they showed light in their eyes, except for one. And the one character that they, you know, pan across to and you don't see the light in their eyes is actually the one who is infected. And I thought that was amazing. It was so smart to use light in that way. Well, it's
0: just so great that you have all of these talented people working on this project that are thinking down to the very last detail every step of the way. You know, I never noticed it. You know, maybe subliminally, you know, it's something we pick up on. I think that sometimes. You know, when you watch something and you know it's really good, okay, and, and it's beyond just the acting or it's beyond just, you know, the cinematography, there's just like this extra something. It's because there's all of these intelligent beats, these intelligent moments Throughout and, and Dean Cundey, you know, is that type of cinematographer that just has so much knowledge, so much skill. He, he can give us that.
1: Yeah, the, his ability with light is just about the best I've seen. Um, he's able to really smartly think about how light, not only like on set, how it's going to work, but how it's going to translate on film and you know really telling the story using that as one of the tools that's what I'm impressed by with this movie we're really with all John Carpenter's movies but in particular with this movie they're using every possible tool to tell the story they're using the camera frame they're using the story the screenplay by Bill uh, Lancaster Uh, who was actually Burt Lancaster's son. I didn't know that.
0: That's crazy. And he wrote Bad News Bears.
1: Which is a slightly different movie than this. Right. You know, there's some terror there, but it's, you know, brought on by teenagers. Uh, But there's
0: a lot of boozing as well. (laughs) That's true. Right? Matthau's hitting the bottle. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, but you know they use the script they use the lighting they use these insane locations and somebody that we have totally ignored uh, is uh, john lloyd
0: oh yeah the
1: production designer who designed you know this the whole look of the film and i mean could it be better than it is i doubt it no
0: the production design in the thing puts me in mind of the production design of Cloud City and The Empire Strikes Back when everything is going wrong. I'm talking from like the, you know, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker face-off and the carbon freezing chamber to the end. It gives me that type of terror. It's a practical setting. It makes sense. You see beds, chairs, desks, radios... These are things that make sense, but they feel terrifying.
1: Yeah, it feels like an uncomfortable place to be. Yes. And clearly, you know, these people are trying to make it comfortable. It's their home. This Mm -hmm. is where these guys live, like it or not. But it is sparse. It's spare. It's disturbing in a weird way. You know, I mean, even down to like costume and things. You know, the clothes that people are wearing, the the cold. You know how cold it always seems. Um, it it's it's spooky. I mean, they don't have a lot of space, so things feel kind of claustrophobic and crowded. You know, and even you know they were mentioning this one. When they go into, like, this basement area at the end, when they end up getting attacked by the Blair thing, there's so much stuff down there. Like, how did all that stuff get there, you know, to Antarctica? And the, the idea in my head is, like, once it's there, it's there. You know, you're not going to take it back. Right. So it's almost like, you know, it's so much trouble to get things to this area that once they bring stuff there, once they transport things there... Whether it's broken, whether it's unusable, whatever, they're not going to take it back. They're just going to throw it in there and well, it's just going to be there.
0: That actually, you know, is born out in real life. Because one of the features that we saw in the thing were people that went back to the location yeah. many, many years later. They found parts of the helicopter. Yeah. You know, they found parts of, of the buildings. They, they found all these things. So you're 100% right.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, that was shot in, in like a a mine kind of thing. That's, that's how they got there. It's like these mining roads, but that mine closed down the next year. So it is a super isolated place, very similar to how, you know, this Antarctica base would have been. Um, And that makes me wonder, you know, how does that work? Because there are like research bases in Antarctica You know, I I can't imagine that people are just, you know, littering the landscape with like old machinery and old things. But, you know, it seems like in this movie, the idea is that they brought it in and didn't pack it out. But again, I guess that makes me more comfortable with the idea of the Blair thing underground, like constructing a spaceship out of parts. They probably had a lot of parts.
0: Uh, Yeah, I, I bet they did.
1: You know, just stuff that they had abandoned in this building.
0: Yeah. I I mean, there is no trash. You know, there's always another way to repurpose it. Going back to John Lloyd's work, building this base, I mean, how smart was it to go build it in summer... And then wait until the winter time when the snow had settled on it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, they still needed to dress it some. And they actually talked about how they still needed to blow some fake snow. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy. But um, yeah, I, I mean, John Lloyd is a person that when he talks about this film, when we've seen him in interviews, he just has this wonderful, even temperament. He's very intelligent. And he knows exactly how to do his job. So John Lloyd primarily worked as an art director. And uh, he also has a very interesting connection to Alfred Hitchcock in that he worked on 137 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Oh, that's awesome. As an art director. So yeah, for John Carpenter... It was like the red carpet treatment, <laughs> yeah. getting John Lloyd yeah. and getting Whitlock. I mean, getting you know all of these people that that are somehow connected to his heroes, because we know Carpenter loves Hitchcock, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, everything, everything comes back around. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing movie, top to bottom. I, I mean, there's nothing that I could say about this. Uh, That's negative. I I, I mean, there's just nothing that that I have that I'm like, oh. You know, I do have the burning question, which many have. Who is the thing, right? When we're there with Childs and McCready at the end, who is it?
1: Yeah, before we move on to the end of the movie, which I definitely want to talk about in detail, I just want to quickly give a little bit more praise to my favorite actor in the film, Jed. Oh, yeah! (laughs) The... The dog. So the dog, not the one that's running across the the snow field, because that was a dog that was, I guess, painted to look like Jed. Jed is the animal actor who we see kind of walking around the base. And he's a half wolf dog. And everyone just constantly was talking about how amazing he was. Because he was so well-trained that they could have him, you know, walk by a dolly. He doesn't look at the dolly. He doesn't look at the camera. He doesn't look at anybody who's operating any of the equipment. He's just so well-trained that he just would walk down the hall, you know, stop where they wanted him to stop, look where they wanted him to look. And it was really funny because Richard Mazur, like, just seems f- like he was totally enamored with this dog. And he was so happy that he got to work with Jed. And every single person on the commentaries is like, oh, Jed was a great dog. <laughs> yeah. You're right. So, and we also think Jed was great. He looked great. He's, he's eerie, almost. Like, he's a dog but he seems like more than a dog Mm -hmm. and you know i don't think they could have done it without that like we've seen a lot of movies with animals and i don't think i've ever seen an animal who had such a human quality as jad no you could see him hit
0: his marks yeah you could see him thinking yeah i i mean it really was an actor it was incredible
1: when he goes into like the the pen with Mm -hmm. the other dogs and he's just looking straight ahead it's amazing he you just you're like what's he looking at like you're just like i mean anyway jed is awesome and i didn't want to let it go without talking jed
0: well i I, i'm gonna build on jed because i'm (laughs) a big jed fan okay jed yes the best what also was crazy again with this movie, you know, putting the illusion right in front of you and you not catching it, there were a couple of shots that were actually a stuffed Jed. Yeah. And, and I was like, what? You yeah. know what I mean? You never knew. No. Nope. You, you never knew. I mean, we've got like fake hands, fake dogs. Yeah. You know, what what else is fake? Enough? I mean,
1: and, and again, this is Dean Cundey, like framing it, using light, using focus. To convince you of something that is off, and you don't think about it,
0: you don't question it. (laughs) It's
1: it's amazing.
0: We should talk a bit more about Susan Turner's spaceship.
1: We should, and Susan Turner in general, because she also did. uh, She also worked on the stop motion sequence that was not used. Mm -hmm. You can go and see this footage on some of the special features. They had like a lot more with like the Blair thing. Um, where she built, like, an entire replica of the set in miniature. And I'm blown away by this. I don't have this attention to detail, focus, and patience of this person. (laughs) But, like, she made the model of the spaceship using, like, ABS plastic and made all of these little pieces that, like, would go onto it that would be uh, rendered in brass. And... It's it's really a work of art. Like, again, we're talking about this thing. It's an art piece. She put in lights around the edges that would light up in a certain way. Lights uh, on the top and at the bottom. So that it really had, like, this special flying saucer look that really is amazing.
0: Well, she said that she used lights from a dollhouse kind of on, on the... I don't. Know, what do you want to call that? The circle yeah. on, a, you know, around the edge of the saucer itself. She used lights from a dollhouse, and they actually showed you a controller where they could, you know, make the lights go faster, slower, yeah. however they wanted to do it. She
1: built it so it could be programmed. I mean, wow. You I know? mean, that's what I'm saying. She's awesome, and and the cool thing for me, anyway, was that you know she was saying that she was really excited to be able to work on this because she was one of the few female model makers uh, working in the movies, Mm -hmm. and John Carpenter was, like, super cool with that. He didn't even bat an eyelash about the fact that, you know, it's a girl doing the model. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, John Carpenter is not afraid of strong women. We saw, you know, when he was working with Deborah Hill on Halloween, who is, you know, unbelievably brilliant. You know, he has these great actresses that he's worked with. Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau, who he was married to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, I, I think that's another thing about John Carpenter. He recognizes talent and, you know, doesn't think about, oh, you know, it's not a boys club. And that's, the th- that's, that's a thing where I felt some of the criticism of this movie, having just a male cast and not having any females, was kind of unwarranted. Because it makes sense in the context of the movie. Like, it makes sense.
0: I don't trust anyone at that base. You know, I don't trust them with each other. You know, like, adding any more people to the mix... Yikes. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: and it's not... It's very rugged. It's like this very rugged location.
0: You know, when you're up there at that base, Outpost 31, again, I just feel like you've got people that are just trying to numb themselves in all ways. You've got people, you know, you, you have McCready, who again, like you said, he has PTSD, he's kind of running from the world. You have Clark, which to me doesn't seem like he can function in the world. No. You know, Palmer, you know, I don't think that he would be doing that great in the real world, you know?
1: Palmer feels to me like he's there for punishment. Like, he probably was working at another place, and because he's so, like, Mm anti-authority, they were just like, nah, we're sending this guy to Antarctica. (laughs) Like, And I mean, the same thing with Windows. I mean, none of these guys really seem like they would be very functional in a normal place. And, yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like they were sent here because they're, like, the best of the best. It feels like they were sent here because nobody wants them around.
0: Yeah, I mean, these these are the the misfits, you know? And it's it's, like, the dangerous misfits. And, again, Windows, I mean, when he's talking on the radio at the beginning, he has, like... The darkened glasses on. I felt like he was a DJ for Christ's sake. You yeah. know what I mean? I didn't feel like he was, no. you know, any type of communicator, radio operator. I mean, yeah, there, there's nothing up there that, that has any order at all. Mm-mm. And it's terrifying. The, the situation's terrifying enough. And then we add in this thing literally, that brings in all of this paranoia and that builds on, you know, all of your bad feelings for Mm -hmm. each other and the world. Oh, my God. And then
1: these are the guys who are... (laughs) These are the last row of people who were here to stop this thing from destroying the entire world. Are they the best people for the job?
0: Well... You just made me think of something else. And this was never said, but I think it's very possible that this was an influence. This makes me think of Sam Peckinpah's film, The Wild Bunch. You have these over-the-hill gunslingers, right? They're outlaws. They do the final score, right? And, you know, they're down in Mexico. They've escaped. And this, you know, gang takes one of theirs, you know, and is torturing them. And they could just walk away with the money and be happy. But they say, no, this stops. We are not doing this. We are not letting it happen. Mm. And that's what, you know, this feels like. Because in The Thing, it's a death sentence. I mean, McCready says, we all know none of us are getting out of here alive. And the Wild Bunch, before they, you know, decide to take on this gang, you know, all these gunslingers are like, this is it. You know, it's, it's a definite choice
1: that's for sure that has to be part of this because john carpenter adores westerns yes like he's very highly influenced by westerns yeah so i don't know if he had that exact one in mind but for sure these characters in this have that western sensibility you know and i mean it's and i mean even if you just look at macready's horrendous hat. <laughs> it's very, like, Western-inspired. I love that Kurt Russell hated
0: the hat, yeah. but they shot footage before he got there with someone wearing the hat, you know, when they were playing him, so he had to do it. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, again, it's just like a practical joke that you're playing on people.
1: They locked him in with that hat. Yeah. Oh, it's very funny. But yeah, I mean, this, this has a very Western feel to it, and... That is that's smart. I love that. I love that thought.
0: Well, to take it even a step further, let's look at the music. Ennio Morricone, right? And again, you know, where do we know him from? The Spaghetti Westerns, right? Yeah. You know, and, and so it's like we again have that connection. And if we want to take it a step further, when Quentin Tarantino did The Hateful Eight, he once again got Ennio Morricone to do the music.
1: Well, and the music that, that Ennio Morricone did for The Hateful Eight, was actually unused music from The Thing. (laughs) So there's a connection there as well.
0: Yep. I I mean, and didn't he win an award?
1: Yes, and that's what I love the most. Ennio Morricone was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Musical Score in 1982 for The Thing. Wow. And then, (laughs) many, many years later, he used three pieces of music from the thing that had been unused for Hateful Eight and won an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Timing
0: is everything, I guess, right?
1: How the turntables.
0: <laughs> Man, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well it's it's funny because yeah, it, it's like the story is Carpenter got, you know, this first pass of music and he wasn't really feeling it. And he said, okay, you know, listen to, you know, Escape from New York, kind of go off of that, you know, as your bass. And so then, you know, the new music came in. And even with that, John Carpenter wanted some additional music to happen. So he and, you know, his uh, his musical partner at the time, uh, Alan Howarth, you know, they went and they added some, you know, extra pieces to the music as well because you know music again factors in so heavily in all of these John Carpenter oh, projects
1: yeah. and he's very control freak with his music I mean, his father was a music teacher with a PhD you know and he grew up you know around music so music is like something where he really has a vision of what he's looking for and he knows how to get it.
0: Well, and also, he doesn't compose anything until he actually sees, you know, the footage of the film. Then he goes and he works off of that.
1: Yeah, like an improvisation. It's like a jazz thing almost. It's that, amazing. It is. It's crazy. But, I mean, that's how he came up with some of the most iconic synths scoring in any movies ever. I mean, like it's, I don't know.
0: Let's take a moment to talk about the opening title sequence.
1: Yeah, so Peter Curran, uh, who's a visual effects guy, did this. And the lettering is actually exactly like uh, the Howard Hawks 1951 film lettering uh, where it says the thing. Um, And the way they did it was pretty brilliant and ingenious. These people are so creative, the way they come up with things. Um, And what they did was, or what he did, was that he kind of filled up this aquarium tank with smoke And on the back of the tank, he put in like this cutout with the thing written in this particular lettering, kind of cutout of, I don't know what that piece was made of, cardboard or something. And on the front of that, he put like opaque garbage bag. And then behind it, he put like this fairly strong light. And so he lights the bottom of the garbage bag on fire and as it burns away it opens up the cutouts and the light shines through the lettering so that it's kind of like this glowing kind of writing where it says the thing and it looks amazing
0: well you can actually see the burning you can see the flame as it goes yeah i i love that i couldn't believe How creative that was.
1: Yeah, and it's just like a really small thing, but it does so much to set the mood of this crazy movie at the beginning.
0: Well, I mean, because we actually see this spaceship. And, you know, between, you know, Susan Turner and this awesome flying saucer, and I loved how they would stop it and they would actually point out all the different lights and how they made it work. You know, as it came to Earth. Yeah, you know, they did it was... like
1: a four-layer pass or something. She said wow. to make that shot, and it looks really good.
0: It looks great. Yeah, it looks great. You and know, and the
1: guys that did the sound for it had like worked on Star Trek, so they used like some of their you know Star Trek sounds,
0: like the whooshing.
1: Yeah, that they kind of like it originated. So like all of our thoughts about what a spaceship sounds like come from these guys. It's really awesome. Yeah.
0: I think, yeah. I think that that's just really something. I mean, all in all, again, the best. I mean, who's your favorite actor in this?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's really hard to pick because I think everybody's really good. But I really love Wilfred Brimley as Blair. Mm. I think Blair is kind of my favorite character because of that scene where he figures everything out. Like, I love a detective person, you know, I love a detective character, I love a smart character, and he really is, like, a very smart, solid person, he clearly knows what he's doing, you know, unlike all these other people down there who are kind of nuts, you know, he seems pretty grounded and pretty level-headed, so for him to kind of lose his shit is not an everyday occurrence. And when he goes off, he like goes off. And it is because he's realized something really horrifying. I mean, it puts me into that position of how would I feel if I discovered that, you know, I'm dealing with an apocalyptic event and I'm the only person that can stop it. But to do that, I have to give my life and convince all of these people with me to give their lives as well. That's rough. That's rough. That's rough. I mean, also, I think Kurt Russell is unbelievable in this movie. And the fact that he was able to hold his own among all of these, like, highly trained actors says a lot about him.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, his work in this, I think this is my favorite performance I've ever seen of Kurt Russell. I adore the Wilfred Brimley as well. It's a very layered character. There's a lot there. And there's a lot of colors That particularly when we were younger, you know, we we didn't get to see because, again, I was watching Our House, you know, (laughs) and, you know, like this television show where he's this nice old grandpa. You know, I mean, all the actors in this are so good. It's hard for me to pick out who is the best because every second I'm like, oh, well, what about Keith David? I'm like, oh, my God, I love Keith David. Keith
1: David's great. And, like, this was kind of like his first movie.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, he has just this well of strength. That's what I like so much about it. And we have this wonderful, you know, dynamic, you know, that this this antagonistic, ambivalent relationship between McCready and Childs for the whole film. Yeah. You know, and, and it carries through to the end. And it keeps you guessing. And what's good about that is you really like those two characters a lot. And you really don't want to see either one of them go. So we don't get to see the death. You know, we don't have that moment. So we can still actually have some hope, in my opinion, at the end of this film. People talked about how bleak it was. And yes, I can fully understand the end of the world that's... You know, it's not a joke.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and they don't make a decision, so it's just very left open, and it's scary because the thing is, unless they make the choice to just burn it down, yeah. if if either or both of them is infected and they die just by freezing, that doesn't get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, we've already had this thing has been frozen for thousands of years, and that might delay the inevitable but it's not going to kill it. Fire is what kills it. Mm -hmm. So really, they're going to have to make the decision to just burn up because they're also, you know, there's no way to live through this. They've destroyed the entire base. It's burnt down. They have no shelter. It's, you know, sub-freezing, well under freezing, well under zero probably. And so they can either burn or they can freeze. And if one of them or even both of them is infected, freezing isn't going to take care of the business here.
0: No. And we've already had, you know, through expert foreshadowing, we've seen that trip, you know, the McCready and Dysart take to that Norwegian base. We see everything's burnt out. Everyone's dead. Everything's gone. Everything is destroyed. There's nothing left. It's completely gone, Yeah, you know? And then, again, when they're back, you know, at their own base at Outpost 31, they're actually looking at this footage of this Norwegian team actually finding the ship, you know? And it's funny because that footage... Really looks like the footage from the Howard Hawks film.
1: Yeah, well, and the, the process that the, the Norwegians follow, that they film themselves following, is what they did do in the 1951 film. You know, they show them all around the periphery of this object in the ice, you know, showing the circular shape of it. And then uh, they show them blowing it up with thermite to get it out of the, out of the ice. Because I guess that's the normal process for retrieving something from ice. And that's exactly what happened um, in the 1951 film. But when they blew up the thermite in that movie, it destroyed the spaceship and it woke up the thing. Um, so in this, one senses it must be the same kind of situation. Yeah. So.
0: Well, the last thing I I think I want to mention is, again, we're going back to that blood test scene, which I like so much. When we actually find that Palmer is the one, and he is tied to a chair.
1: With the others.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just see Palmer, you know, just start to, like freak out and shake. You know, it almost looks like uh Axl Rose from the Welcome to the Jungle <laughs> video. You know, just <laughs> when like, when he's in, freaking like out. the electric chair. Yes! Yeah. Yeah. It's like this total That's total funny. freak out. You know, so we've got the Axl Rose freak out. And then, you know, we we see, you know, the transformation. It gets nuts. His head turns into this mountain of just rotting flesh and skull that opens up. You know what I mean? And you're just like, oh my God. And
1: Mac tells Windows to shoot him with a oh. flamethrower, but Windows kind of hesitates and that's all it takes for this thing to clamp down on his head and just start eating him.
0: Oh my God. It's crazy.
1: It's a wild scene. I mean, wild.
0: It reminds me of Little Shop of Horrors.
1: And yes, it does see that. Well, it's back to the plant thing again. Oh but yeah. But then also, like, so Mac, his flamethrower at this point starts malfunctioning. Oh my god! So he can't shoot it, and there are all these other three guys because it's I believe it's Knolls, and Childs, and Gary who are still on this couch, like tied up with ropes. They can't move. They can't go anywhere. Uh, Palmer is eating well, what used to be Palmer is eating windows. <laughs> oh my god, and McReady can't shoot him because his uh, his flamethrower is not igniting. Finally, it does, you know, and he, he gets him. And, and Palmer, the Palmer thing runs out into the snow, which was a crazy stunt thing. Um, that this person did where apparently you can't breathe while you're on fire because it would go into your lungs so you have to like hold your breath so the person who is on fire is like holding their breath and like running into the snow and Kurt Russell like throws out a piece of dynamite there and he didn't realize how big the explosion is going to be and it like scared the shit out of him <laughs> when he did it he was just like oh my god and the next shot after the explosion is like it goes it punches in on Kurt Russell and he looks kind of like totally like shocked and John Carpenter's like well that wasn't acting because <laughs> it, was it was real it was really funny but yeah that's that scene is is crazy and then uh, they instantly are like well after they go back in and they uh, kill Windows too, before he can turn into a thing Knowles is like test me next like I want to get out of here so, you know, he checks him. He's fine. The next scene, he's free. Then Childs is like, do me, do me. And they do him. He's okay. They let him out. And then you still have poor Gary tied to this oh, thing. And they finally, finally do his test. And he's so pissed. I mean, Donald Moffat is perfect in the scene. Because he's been sitting there. He's been as patient as he can be. Right. He was right next to Palmer. Like, he was right next to him when this whole thing was going on. So, he's done. He's 100% yeah. done. And he has this great line delivery where he says, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> that's my that, that's my number one line that's why <laughs> i think one that line. definitely could give you got to be fucking kidding a run for its money because of the delivery and just like how unbelievably pissed gary is and he's been chill like he's scared but he hasn't been angry or mean the whole time but he's 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 hit the wall he's done i love the way he did that
0: well, I mean, I think this is very funny. So when McCready actually sets Palmer on fire after he's turned with the flamethrower, he's right next to a pinball machine called Heatwave.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: there's like a thermometer, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. You know, Palmer goes up in flames, goes outside. I mean, it's just this ridiculous inferno. You know, I mean, there's a lot of tension, too, because it takes a while for McCready's flamethrower to light
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Stressful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And again, I talk about humor because... The other gaming machine that we see in the room is Asteroids Deluxe from Atari, and in that game, what do you do? You blow up asteroids, and you blow up flying saucers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, Thematically oh, wow. appropriate.
0: Right? It's almost like, you know, I Quentin Tarantino has such a great eye for film, and Pulp Fiction. Do you remember when they're trying to resurrect Uma Thurman? You know, they're trying to bring her back to life after she OD'd, mm-hmm. and then actually Actually, the game of life is oh visible. Gosh. Yeah. So it's like, you know, these little things That's really. That's
1: great mise-en-scene.
0: Right? It yeah. adds so much. It That's adds so awesome. much. Yeah, it's just a great movie.
1: So what what do you think at the end? Do you think Childs and or MacReady is the thing?
0: Uh, see, okay. You know, there have been so many theories I've heard people say over the years, and none of them really seem... Like, they hold water for me. I
1: agree. And, I mean, John Carpenter's kind of said, no, you know, we haven't, we didn't do any of those things, you know. There's no trick. And he, he's like, I know who it is, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Right. Why won't he tell us? I feel like it. it's, I feel like it has to be your choice. I feel like it kind of has to be your feeling. And I have a feeling. I think Childs is.
0: Okay. Well, Childs does disappear You know, at the climax of the film, at the very end, you know, this final showdown, we just don't have him anywhere. Yeah. So you're like, is he dead? Where is he? Is there another one? And then he just shows up and it's just like this real toss-off of an answer. Mm -hmm. So I I do think if if I look at it through that lens, yes.
1: Yeah, for me, that's where I'm coming from with it. Yeah. He ran off when Blair came in, Um, and he wasn't supposed to. Like, he was supposed to stay at his post. Like, that was the thing. And Childs is not a guy who... Childs is pretty dependable. Yes. Like, I know that they think he's angry and everything at the beginning, but he's pretty dependable throughout. And, you know, he became more of a team player by the end part. Absolutely. And so I don't think he necessarily would have done that, like run off when he was supposed to stay there. He does come back and and talk to McCready and it's very it just doesn't feel very real. Um, I also noted again that if Dean Cundy's ad light thing holds true, mm-hmm. you do have uh McCready having that ad light and you do not really see that with child's so you know I'm not sure if that was supposed to hold that all, hold true all the way through if it was just for that other scene but it does give him a less real feeling um, where you have more of a sense that he is off um, people have had a couple of different things like that, oh, you know, McCready filled that booze bottle with gasoline. And yeah. I was like, we don't have any evidence of that. Like, I don't know where that came from. It's a cool idea, but, like, I don't think that you could say that's really what happened. And then the other one was somebody said, like, that Kurt Russell has, has like, visible breath, but Childs doesn't. But yeah. I didn't find that to be the case. I did see Childs breathe out. And... You know, I also know from the commentaries that Kurt Russell was, like, pretty conscious of making sure that he had that breath. So, sometimes he would, like, you know, take a puff of a cigarette before a scene so he would have breath, like, visible breath. Or he would have dry ice in his mouth or something like this. Um, So, you know, Dean Cundey spoke about Kurt Russell being, like, a really good technical actor, where he would like be holding a lantern and Cundy would be like, all right, make sure you're holding that to light yourself. And he would be able to do that while he's acting. So, you know, I think that I can't judge anything off of Kurt Russell's smoky breath.
0: Sure. I mean, and also, you know, Kurt Russell held a flare, a lit flare, you know, to light his face. Yeah. You know, and they talked about how these flares were just you know, toxic fumes, horrible. And all the cast were trained how to use flamethrowers. So they used flamethrowers, but they were also taught how to put out fires as well, you know, and then they would have like the fire department standing by in case, you know, they couldn't do it. I mean, there was just, there was a lot of training. I yeah. mean, you know, you had all these guns, you know what I mean? And and then you had all these monsters You know, I would have to say that uh, the actor that played Fuchs, uh, Polis was his last name. This was his first film, Mm -hmm. Joel Polis. And he said that this was the time of his life because (laughs) it was, you know, obviously it was winter, but it was just like summer camp. And he got to do all the things that he always wanted to do. And it's just, he has just this exuberance when he talks about this project Because he had only done one film prior to this. He had done a student film. And he was so lucky because John Carpenter had seen this film. The one film (laughs) Polis was in and was like, yeah, you're the guy. Uh, You can't do better than that. That I mean, even when talking about the bus ride to the set and almost dying, this guy was just like, yeah. you know, (laughs) It was
1: awesome. I mean, he's awesome.
0: Yeah, I love that. And his character... You know, Fuchs is a very, you know, serious man. There's a lot going on there. He's the one that says that they shouldn't even allow other people to prepare their food anymore. They should eat out of cans.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's very conscious. He's a biologist. He's very conscious of, you know, trying to follow communicable disease protocols and stuff. And he uh, has a heroic death, the most heroic death maybe in the movie because he you know they are able to extrapolate that he probably set himself on fire rather than you know come back to camp infected you know so he set himself on fire to avoid being infected because he didn't feel like there's any other way i mean that's pretty hardcore
0: i'd say it is i mean (laughs) with the ending i'm going to present something else so child's and McCready, okay So, I guess we can safely say that one of these two, or maybe both, are the Thing. Well, no. If they're both the Thing, then they would be like, hey, you the Thing? Yeah, I'm the Thing, too. We're cool. (laughs) Um, But with Childs and McCready at the very end, what I think, and this is weird, so I do think that Childs would be the Thing. What if the Thing kind of thought McCready was all right (laughs) and just wanted to hang out with him? Until he had to kill him. You know, like, I think that if you were trying to pose as a human, what is the best way to do it? Be with another human. So, just like with the dog that showed up at camp. Okay, let's say a rescue party came to get them. And the two of them were there. And McCready said, don't take him. He's an alien posing as a human. All Childs would have to do is say that he's mentally incompetent.
1: Mm. And
0: McCready's behavior would make everyone think, okay, this guy is off his rocker. So they wouldn't listen to him. They would chain him up, you know, they would bind him. And then Childs would be free. Yeah. And then he would just take everything over and he would get back to civilization. So I think that McCready is Childs's ticket back. And there's also part of me that thinks that maybe there is uh, almost a a spark of mutual admiration because MacReady has made it Mm. this far.
1: That's very possible. I mean, I think that that is kind of a, uh, a realistic interpretation of how that alien could feel. I mean, it's an interesting thought. I also think that it's very possible that. McCready is just like allowing them to have you know a couple final minutes before he torches the both of them (laughs) and we just don't see that happen um I mean I wouldn't put it past them so I don't know I mean and it's also
0: crazy again if we want to talk about bringing it back around our introduction to McCready is him drinking whiskey and playing chess and he has this strategy and he thinks he's great and he's so smug. You know, he's playing against this, uh, you know, robot on the computer, which is actually voiced by Adrian Barbeau. I think you mentioned that earlier.
1: Yes. So it's really the only woman in the movie, right? Is the voice of Adrian Barbeau on the chess game. It's crazy because it's like, so he's playing
0: against someone that's not human and then he loses right? You know, the the computer gets the best of him, and then he gets pissed, and he pours his drink, you know, just into the mainframe, just short-circuits the computer. I mean, that's so crazy. I mean, how's he going to replace that
1: computer? (laughs) Who knows? But the whole thing is, it shows us from, like, the first introduction to him that he does not accept defeat.
0: Mm -mm. No, he's not a man that backs down, and that's why... Having him with Childs is just perfect, because both of these men are unstoppable forces of nature. When they set their mind to it, nothing is going to change their mind, you know, and they don't back down. I mean, when McCready is demanding that they do this blood test and Childs says no, McCready says, I'll kill you, you know, and Childs basically dares him. He takes a gun, puts it in Childs' face. He cocks the gun. I mean, he's going to kill him, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you like to think that McCready, you know, is a good guy and he wouldn't do it. But, I mean, in that moment, I just don't know, you know? I don't know either. At the very end, we're faced with, you know, the same thing that we have at the beginning. You know, McCready has this very fierce opponent, you know, and he doesn't like to lose. You know, what's going to happen? We don't know. You know, and again, what is his strategy? you know, to kind of wait it out. And if Childs is the thing, which, you know, after we talked, I do think Childs is the thing, Childs wants to freeze. He wants to freeze so he can be found. Or he can hitch a ride through McCready, you know, like like we talked about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, like I think what you're saying is really smart because it is a bookend. At the beginning you have McCready facing a non human opponent mm-hmm. in this game of chess. That does lend more credence to the idea that Childs is the thing. Because then we would have MacReady, again, playing a sort of game of chess with a non-human opponent. And, you know, this time, he is still refusing to accept defeat. But he's also being much more strategic with his moves. Yeah. I do think that, you know, they leave it open. I mean, they could have set this up for a sequel. We could have had, you know, a rescue party show up in a couple of minutes. But I think, you know, that would have kind of... I don't know if that, that would have made sense. They had multiple options for the ending that had been discussed. Um, there was apparently an ending where McCready and Childs both are the thing. And the rescuers show up and they kind of, you know, immediately are going to be taking over the entire world. Okay. There is uh, another, that wasn't filmed. Okay. Um, There's another ending that they did film where McCready was saved and he took a blood test and was shown to be clear. And, you know, it was kind of like the happy ending, (laughs) I guess. (sighs) I mean, how happy is it? I don't know. But John Carpenter didn't like it. Um, He felt like it was cheesy. And I guess that that ending didn't test well. Um, And so they went with this more ambiguous kind of choice. Um, And I think it's the best option. Um, And I don't like ambiguous endings normally. I don't either. I usually like when people make a decision. But with this, I think that it made more sense because it doesn't answer the question that we've been asking the whole time. This movie is all about being paranoid and saying, you know, who is the thing? And then so, to, and it's a horror movie, so you're not supposed to feel good, you know? So at the end of the movie, you're still asking the same question and you still don't know the answer. And it's just to kind of reinforce that idea that, you know, you're not going to get a good answer on this.
0: I think that's that's a very good way of looking at it. I mean, we can also look at it, the good and evil will always exist. And one will never conquer the other.
1: And that you maybe can't tell which is which sometimes. Yeah. You know, so I think that's interesting.
0: Well, this is a very interesting, you know, kickoff to the Apocalypse Trilogy that John Carpenter put together. And that began, of course, with The Thing. And that continued with Prince of Darkness. And that concluded with In the Mouth of Madness.
1: I'm not really going to get into that for a very specific reason. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What's that? And that's because we're going to be back next week, or really this week, because this episode's coming out pretty late, (laughs) uh, (laughs) with our final episode of the John Carpenter Horror Month. And we're popping off a double app again, doing another double feature with Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, the other two films in this Apocalypse trilogy of John Carpenter. You know, we had a lot of thoughts about how we were going to wrap this month up, and it was really difficult to kind of decide. We have watched other movies that we decided we weren't going to talk about this time. And we really were going back and forth of which one of these two movies we wanted to discuss. And we decided, you know what? We're doing the thing. It's part of that trilogy. Let's just do a double feature to do the other two. Um, Because we just want to talk about as many movies as we possibly can. Because we love John Carpenter's work so much.
0: Yeah. And and we did actually get to see him at an in-person signing over the weekend, which was incredible. Um, You know, he was he was very nice. You know, I I brought a poster of the fog for him to sign. And when I gave it to him, he went the fog. (laughs) It was pretty good. And then he went and he signed it. And it's a beautiful signature right in the middle of the poster. Can't wait to get it framed. And then I said to him, thank you, Bennett. (laughs) (laughs) and he laughed and it it was great you know georgia got pictures with him which was really cool and he also went ahead and signed the cover art for assault on precinct 13 blu-ray from shout factory
1: yeah so not a horror movie but another carpenter film that we both really love um so that was just like an amazing coincidence that happened to come about um you know we've really been in on this month with these carpenter movies going out to the filming locations we can take pictures of and things like that so mm-hmm. uh, obviously not an option here we didn't go to to british columbia i'm sorry <laughs> uh, we uh, didn't we didn't fly to the ice fields above Juneau for this but you know if we could have that would have been really cool <laughs> i would have done it
0: oh yeah and i mean if i could have secured that interview with jed i mean <laughs> of you course know, i mean we would have had that too
1: Uh, But, you know, not as many hands-on activities for the thing. But we will be back next week to conclude our John Carpenter Horror Month with that double feature of Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And I'm looking forward to that big time. Me too. um, We will see you then. Uh, But until then, stay comfy.
0: Stay comfy, everybody.